The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. So if you have your Bibles open here to Genesis chapter 1, and I'll go to this uh, text in just a moment. But uh, again, a little bit of an affirmation why this series of sermons. Uh, And I think tonight you'll see a couple of applications that are important as we look to the matter of Our fourth sanctity. We have looked at sanctity number one, that the book of Genesis teaches us our utter dependence on the sanctity of divine revelation. There are two books that God has given to us. The book of of, um, the general revelation, the book of creation, and special revelation, God's word. Those are the two books that he has given to us. And as I said in that uh, study, they're never contradictory. Now, the interpreters may be contradictory of those two books, but the books are not contradictory. The book of creation is infallible and inerrant. The um, The book of the Word of God, the Scripture, is infallible and inerrant. They are non-contradictory, but they are given with distinct purpose. The book of divine revelation is not sufficient for salvation. It is sufficient for information. It is sufficient in education to the reality of God, that God is to be worshipped and is to be exalted, and that we are to bring right worship before God. And that stands abundantly clear in creation, as well as the acts of God throughout his creation. But it is special revelation that gives us the insights into the majesty of God. We call that proper theology and its implications in our life. We call that practical theology. And so that book of special revelation is a place that we begin. Now, why do I take the time to give you a little bit over uh, over communication or review there? Because when you come to the subjects that we are now dealing with, you constantly are looking at the book of general revelation and the book of special revelation. So we went from the... Um, the sanctity of, uh, of divine revelation to the sanctity of God. Who is God? Well, it is God's Word that gives us the information we need to know of the majesty of God and the intricacies of God and the saving power of God. That's not born witness in general revelation. General revelation does not give you the doctrine of the Trinity, although it's the result of the doctrine of the Trinity. It does not give you the doctrine of salvation. It does not reveal all of the attributes of God in their majesty as special revelation. Does So we are, it is important, Calvin puts it this way, that you read the book of general revelation through the glasses of special revelation. That's how you, that special revelation develops your worldview. And I can't think of any, maybe Romans, but I can't think of many other books more important than the book of Genesis to understand the fourfold work of God in this world creation, 
And then the fall and God's response to it, redemption, and then consummation. That God's, that work that happens, creation, the fall, and that's how the scriptures unfold. Creation, fall, redemption, and then the consummation. And that framework of special revelation becomes the filter. It becomes the frame. It becomes the filter. And it becomes the focus, particularly of all of those things that come to you. I was just talking with my step-granddaughter today, who has got, a, I think, a double major, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, um, and you know, we were just kind of joking a little bit. But, you know, she's going, one of those majors is sociology. And I said, well, beware of the sociologist. Even those that profess to be Christian have a tendency to go to special revelation to nuance and make use of what they think they already know from general revelation. And it actually ought to be the other way around. We ought to know the Word of God so that we've got the glasses through which to read what we get from general revelation. Well, that led us to a third sanctity from the, from the sanctity of divine revelation, the two books, the sanctity of God, who He is, our holy God, who is uh, righteous and just in all that he does as creator, redeemer, sustainer, and judge. But then we move to a third, and that is the sanctity of creation. Have y'all ever noticed that when the Apostle Paul goes to speak to the Gentiles, and he's got a group that he is speaking to, where does he start? He starts at creation. Now, when he goes to a synagogue, he doesn't start at creation. Why? They got that. He doesn't even start at sin. They got that. What does he do in the, in the, in the marketplace? What did he do at Areopagus? He starts with creation, the doctrine of creation, then the doctrine of redemption, then the doctrine of providence, then the doctrine of the judgment and the consummation. That's the flow that he uses. So the doctrine of creation is absolutely crucial. Uh, well, we... We, I know it was a little bit like drinking out of a fire hose last Sunday night, but I encourage you to go back and listen to that as well as let me again tell you that what I dealt with last, last week and this week, I am greatly indebted to some people that, uh, you know, I stand alongside, stand on their shoulders just to learn as much from as I can. I am so, I am so appreciative of the professor of Old Testament that we had here to preach and his insights on the doctrine of creation, particularly his expositions that I've heard him do on Genesis. They have been so informative. Dr. Johnny, uh, Jonathan, let me do the formal name, Dr. Jonathan Gibson. Uh, next, uh, R.C. Sproul, his uh, lectures on Genesis are just extraordinarily helpful. Uh, Jim Boyce, his commentary on Genesis. Uh, and then the guy that's coming to preach for us next week, Dr. Richard Phillips, his commentary on Genesis 1 is extraordinarily helpful. And then one of my old professors in my grad, my upper, um, my doctoral work, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kelly uh, and um, Dr. Douglas Kelly, his uh, book on Genesis, uh, on um, just it's just a, and particularly creation or change. You need to get that book and you need to read it. Dr. Francis Schaeffer, Genesis in Space and Time, was extraordinarily helpful. So, I mean, those are just some of them. There are, uh, there are many, many more that I could respond to, but those are the ones that have just kept, and I can, every time I say something, I could all 
almost have to footnote these people. So could you all consider that? In other words, uh, in a sense, I'm not doing direct quotes, but they've so affected me. It's just kind of bled into my system over the last 30 or 40 years reading these guys. So I almost feel like I need to go like this, you know, the the proverbial quotes. But I I want to give credit uh, as I can to these who have so affected me. So let me um, let me also. uh, So but now we get to this matter out of the doctrine of creation. We run to the sixth day, the creation of Adam. Who is man, male and female? I mean, right now, you live in a culture that's searching for identity and makes use of identity to divide people. It makes use of identities. I mean, have you heard identity politics? It makes use of identity, that this is your identity, and that puts you in an adversarial relationship with people of other identities. Well, to handle that, we need to understand the Scriptures, and we need to understand the doctrine of creation, and specifically the creation of man, male and female. Now, I started to try to be cute and entitle this sermon, Come Tonight, and we will find out if Adam had a belly button. That's what's going to be my, you know, I already tried one joke out on you last week. The, you know, the boy that saw the dust underneath and he said, Mama, did, did God make Adam from the dust of the earth? Yes. Did he? And when he died, did he return to dust? And she said, yes. And she, he said, Mama, you need to look under my bed. There's somebody coming or going. And then, uh, but then by, uh, but then the other one was the question, you know, that everybody asked it, you know, did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> well, can I go ahead and solve that for you? When we get to heaven, and I believe you'll see Adam in heaven, uh, check him. I, he won't have one. I can promise you he won't have one. I'm, I am absolutely sure in my sanctified speculation he doesn't have one. And you're about to find out why I don't think. He had one. So who, this, who is this Adam? And, uh, and how are we to see his presence? <clears throat> and as here we start running into challenges, folks, and you start running into challenges. And the challenge, the first challenge that you run into is that, um, in the evangelical world, they start to answer this. And they look to the two books, general revelation, what does science say? Then they look to the Bible, and what does the Bible say? And the tendency is, is to be challenged to the point of sacrificing the integrity of the Word in order to accommodate the claims of science. Now, do not hear me that we dismiss the claims of science, but I do want you to hear this. Science is not general revelation. Science is the current interpretation of men of general revelation. It is not necessarily general revelation. Even the, even the universe, since I, in my very short life, they've already had three different theories that have been taught in curriculum. That they're constantly at work in this and there are insights and there are helps, but we don't start with the speculations of science. Science, by its very definition, should not be claiming absolutes. Science is a communication of discoveries with the information now available. And it's what we think 
And it's what we now, what do we do? Now, we go to divine revelation, and we know that, the, that the, the general revelation would not contradict special revelation. So let's go to take a look at special revelation. Now, by the way, preachers are interpreters of special. So every time you hear a sermon, that doesn't mean that. Don't equate every sermon with the Word of God. Examine the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Just like when a scientist speaks, I'm going to examine, I'm going to examine general revelation and special revelation to see if these things are so. Well, you examine the scriptures as well. Preachers are like science, scientists. They're interpreting one of the books. It's the books that are infallible and inerrant, not the interpreters. Now, because of the pressure of the interpretation of science says, How many times have you heard that in the last 20 years? The science says. You can say yes at the moment. It may say something different later when more information is available or when you quit using your ideology in place of scientific analysis. So what do we want to do? We want to go first to the Word because while both general revelation and special revelation are not contradictory and both are infallible and inerrant, special revelation, as Calvin says, is the glasses. Let's get the glasses on to look at the claims of general revelation. And what margins, what boundaries, what framework, what filter does it give us concerning not only the doctrine of creation, but now the fourth sanctity, the identity of man, male and female. Who is Adam? Now, when you do that, in general and special revelation at this particular time, um, I'm sorry, when you do that at this particular time, even among evangelicals who are supposed to claim what? Sola Scriptura. The Scripture alone is our only authoritative rule of faith and practice. There is not the going from the Scripture to general revelation. There is the going from general revelation and then working with the Scripture to try to make it fit the the current claims of science, the snapshot of science at this particular moment. So now you have rising up different forms of what we are now calling concerning the origin of 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 the world and the origin of man under the frame under a framework called theistic evolution. And it comes in a number of forms. I'm just going to give you um, from three writers that I read, three of those forms. Uh, one of the writers, just to go ahead and tell you, had seven. But I've condensed it for the sake of time, and I don't think I've done injustice to it. I'm going to give you three of those frameworks of theistic evolution that are being proclaimed to declare who man is. And, um, and where did man come from, the origin? Well, there are three of these. Like I said, one, the guy that I read the most has seven, but I'm going to give you three. And uh, here's the first one. Theistic evolution has a doctrine of the, of the origin of man in this sense, that um, they have said, well, we think that Darwinian evolution is right in terms of current science, that there was first the apes, and then the apes, through an evolutionary process, 
turned into hominids. And hominids are human-like but still animal creatures. Hominids that also continued to develop. And the hominids eventually produced man, male and female. That's eventually what happened. Then God selected two of the hominids and breathed into them a human soul. It's an act of, so if you ask that individual, a theistic evolution who believes this, and say, do you believe in the special creation of Adam and Eve? And he says, oh, yes. But what he really believes is in the spiritual um, creation of Adam and Eve, not the physical. He believes that God, through ordinary providence of laws of evolution, produced the physical and then did a special act of creation to breathe into that hominid a soul. And that becomes mankind. From that, uh, that becomes Adam and Eve at that particular point in time. Now, I know your mind is racing ahead on how you're working through that, but don't let it race too far because i got a second one for it to race on as well. Then there's also those that say, no, I mean, <laughs> that's still, that's super, that's a little bit too supernatural at the moment for general revelation. So now we're going to give you another one, and that's this. There was the ape evolution to the hominids, and then the hominids to humanity. And by the way, all of this takes place anywhere from 15,000 uh, 15, to 150,000 years ago. It just depends on who's writing as to how long ago they think it happened. And so they would say that there is there was the ape and then the hominid and then came man. And then God adopted one of those, uh, a pair of those men to make them Adam and Eve, male and female. God adopted them. And God adopted them as Adam and Eve. And so they became the representatives of humanity by appointment and adoption of God. The third explanation. Now, I could, and but I'm not. I could give you the names of the evangelicals that support these. But I'm not going to do it because of a couple of reasons. Uh, but um, you can do your own research. I'm just giving you the particular uh, theistic evolution explanations for humanity. And I don't want to get up and get, it, get lost in this for you to start thinking through the individuals. But let me give you the third one. The third one says, yep, we got apes, we've got hominids, and then we've got... Uh, men, uh, and then we got mankind, male and female, and um, and then actually God didn't breathe into anybody a soul, so you can dismiss number one. God didn't adopt or appoint anybody, uh, and uh, but let me let me tell you what He did. He did create a metaphor, a metaphor of Adam and Eve. That's what He created. So the first two basically say Adam and Eve are myths. Well, the first one doesn't claim a myth, but the second one claimed that Adam and Eve is a myth, and the third one would claim that Adam and Eve are metaphors. They're, they're literary representatives of humanity, from which the myth of sin and its origin is introduced, and, um, and then the framework for understanding redemption. But it's simply a liter- literary metaphor uh, in terms of an original man, Adam, with his bride, Eve. So that's theistic evolution. So I want to be, so I confess it here, I bear my soul. 
I want to be Calvinistic, okay? So I'm going to be Calvinistic and say, join me and let's put some glasses on, go to special revelation, and let's start to work our way from there. Then we'll go to general revelation after that with a few questions. So take your Bibles and go with me to Genesis chapter 1 and look with me at the first statement of the creation of man in Genesis 1 and 26. This is the sixth day of creation. Then God said, let us, note the accommodation of the doctrine of the Trinity with the plural pronoun, let us make man in, again, note the accommodation of the doctrine of the Trinity with the plural pronoun, our, let us make man singular in our image after our likeness. Now watch, he just said, let's make man singular, right? Then he says, let them, that's a plural, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this first account of the creation of man, you now find out a couple of things. What's the first thing? It's a special act of creation. It is a special act of God in creation. Secondly, there is divine dignity reflected upon humanity because they're made, a man is made in the image of God. Thirdly, man as mankind is singular. But, and creation, there will be Two, let me go ahead and anticipate, two genders, male and female. Let them, who's the them? Adam and Eve. What is that? Male and female. Or, as we're about to read, ish, man, isha, woman, reflection of man, or corresponding helpmate to man. So here is, here is the declaration that God is going to make man. One more thing. By being made in, the, in his image, this home I have created for him, I now appoint him to have dominion over it. He is my vice regent, male and female. So now this is not diminishing. Please, I promise you. We're going to get to something called the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of the family. And we're going to park there for about four sermons on marriage and family. So I'm going there. I'm headed there. So please don't turn it off when I say this, because i got more to say about it and, and, and that you need to hear it. And that when people say to me, can a woman work outside the home? Well, Eve did. She had dominion with Adam. They had dominion over all the earth. That does not diminish the primacy of the homemaker nurturing role that a woman is particularly gifted and called to do. It is simply saying that the vice regency of man, male and female, includes Adam and Eve. Subdue the earth, have dominion over it, be fruitful and multiply. So here is the call, the dignity, the special creation, the dignity that is assigned 
Now, this is important. You are not a side. See, most of us think we have dignity by how people treat us. No. Should we treat people with dignity, that's going to be a takeaway. Because you're treating that which is made in the image of God. But our dignity does not come from being wanted or honored by other humans. Our dignity is assigned intrinsically through our creation. God made us in his image. And nothing else in creation is so assigned. Nothing else. There is our dignity. And thus our call for respect to one another. And James thankfully builds on this with profundity uh, in that wonderful epistle. So here is this call that we have. And then what he says, he says, Now let them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God says, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. Now, notice, do birds and animals have the breath of life? Do they have a soul? Absolutely. Are they living souls? Yes. But they are not living souls made in the image of God. And you're going to see that communicated in a very special way in just a moment. So then he says, they all have life and they've been given for you. And it was so. And it was so. And then what? And God saw everything he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, don't miss this. God makes Adam in his image, man in his image, male and female, ish and isha. Then he gives him, he gives man, male and female, three assignments. We call this the covenant of creation. A covenant is a relationship with responsibility between a superior and an inferior. Who's the superior? This isn't hard. Thank you. Who is the inferior? Adam. Male and female. Ish and Isha. That's the, that's the, that's the inferior. What are the three tasks? Subdue the earth. We're going to be back to that. It's called the sanctity of work. Subdue the earth. There's your calling. Vocation. Theology of vocation. Then what? Subdue the earth. Then what? Rule over the creatures. Rule over the creatures. Then what? Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. And I've given you this entire creation, this entire creation for your sustenance, except one tree. Well, except, sorry, two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here are your sacraments, your symbols of the covenant. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat. I'm calling you 
to a total obedience to me. Here's what you do, and you don't do that. And over here is the blessing of the covenant, the tree of life. If you disobey me, will come the cursing of the covenant, death. That's what will come if you disobey me. So here is the covenant with Adam, uh, male and female, Adam and Eve. And here is it established with the three positive commands, the negative command, and the two sacraments of the covenant, the two symbols of the covenant, which I believe were real trees. I don't think you, you can't have a symbol without the symbol having historic substance. There was a real tree of life and there was a real tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you are not to partake of the one and the other is the blessing of life upon your obedience, Adam. Your obedience in this covenant of works, covenant of creation, then you would have the tree of life. Now I want you to go to another text with me. In this creation account. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, after giving us the seven days of creation, including the Sabbath, Genesis chapter 2, I believe, migrates back to the sixth day for us and now turns the microscope from the 10 power to the 30 power. And see what it now says to us. Go down to verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. So we are not at the point. Now, by the way, I just can't help it. Well, why not throw in a hominid? I mean, let them work the ground. <laughs> you see, this this speculation, there's no what? No man. There is no Adam, male and female, to work the ground. So what does he do? So here's what he does. But the Lord God had not caused it to rain the land. There was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the, the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now watch. So what does he do? He now takes Adam, and he makes a man. And that man is Adam, or Ish, man. Adam, Adam, is a more focused name for him. And he makes him in two steps. He creates him in two steps. Number one, from the dust of the ground. Now listen, there's all kind of speculation about this dust of the ground. Unbelievable gymnastics are done on that phrase. So I'm not going to, I'm just going to tell you the vast majority, 90% of the time this is used, it refers to topsoil. So don't get metaphorical with it. It just refers to topsoil throughout the Bible. So he takes the dust of the ground, the topsoil, and he forms it. Now, what does that tell you? This act of creation is not ex nihilo. This act of creation is a mediatorial act. God makes Adam from something he has already made. All right, but where did the dust of the ground come from? 
ex nihilo. God spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. So there is the material. Then when he makes Adam, he goes to what he has already created from nothing into something, the earth. He takes specifically the topsoil and he forms and frames the man. Don't miss this. What is Adam supposed to get done? Subdue the earth. Fill the earth. Rule the creatures of the earth. Is it not appropriate God would make him his body from the earth? And so he does. And he then takes step number two, because at this point, Adam is nothing more than a corpse. And then he breathes into him what? The breath of life. And then it says, Adam, can I give you the original in the Hebrew? Adam became a living soul. A true man. A living soul made in the image of God. God is what? Spirit. And he breathes into Adam from him. Did other animals, were they living beings? Yes. Did they have the breath of life? Yes. But look at the intimacy. God breathes through the nostrils. You see, when he made him, he had nostrils. He just had no breath. When he formed him from the ground, he had nostrils. He didn't have any breath. And then God breathed into the nostrils. I mean, honestly, I know y'all think I am really weird, but every time I watch a TV program and they start doing this mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, I immediately go back to the creation of Adam. God breathes into him the breath of life. We think we really came up something with that technique. It was right back there at the beginning. God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. Now that doesn't mean ex nihilo is out because you wouldn't have had the, you wouldn't have had the uh, dust of the ground without God having spoken it into existence. But then God mediatorially, he mediated the creation of Adam with something he had already created. And he intricately forms it just the way he formed. Now you know why he says to Moses, did I not make the speaking mouth? Now you know why he says to Job, did I not make You see, this is the design of God giving us the body he wants us to have and then giving us the soul that sets us apart from all the other animals, including the specious hominid. (laughs) And so here is this special act of creation in both body and soul. Of Adam. Now that's what the scriptures say. If I have if I have misinterpreted the scriptures, I will be down here afterwards, and you can come show me. But that's what the special revelation of God's word says, and that becomes my framework and my filter to begin to deal with all of the interpreters of general revelation when I get to that point. But I'm not quite through yet. Look with me then. Then the Lord God formed from the dust of the ground, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. 
And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, when God made Adam male, there was no garden. He made the garden after he made Adam. He made the place of his presence and communion with Adam, the garden of Eden, after he made Adam. And so after he has formed him and filled him with the breath of life, he makes the garden and he puts Adam within it. Now what happens? A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Now we get a description of Eden. And there it divided and it became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So a covenant has promises. A covenant has promises of blessing, promises of cursing. It has sacraments, signs, and seals. So here is the covenant. You do these three things. Subdue the earth, have dominion, and fill the earth. And here's the one that you don't do. Here's the negative. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then clearly held out to him is a curse. If you eat it, you die. If you If you are faithful in this call to full obedience, then there is the tree of life that shall be given to you. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So what is he doing? He's naming the creatures. You name something, you have authority over it. So he has in dominion over the creatures, and he is naming them. And as he names them, uh, what does he see? He sees that, um, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then, uh, then the man said, this, it, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha. Who is he? Ish. What does Isha mean? Reflection of Ish. Because she was taken out of Ish. Man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So now we begin to find that he is now doing his work. 
He is subduing the earth. He's tending the garden. He is having dominion. He's naming the creatures. And then he is called to be fruitful and multiplied. But God says it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, please get this. I'm coming back here when we talk about marriage, but I'm going ahead and give it to you because you're here tonight, and I want to give you a little extra. So here's your extra. This doesn't mean God made Eve because Adam was lonely. That's not what it means. Adam was not lonely. Who walked with him in the garden? God. That's enough. There's nothing missing. Then what does it mean he was alone? Here's what it means. He was not capable of the covenant task to subdue the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, and to rule over the creation without Eve to come alongside of him. And just as it was appropriate for Adam to be taken from the earth that he would rule over, fill up and subdue, she was taken from his side because she's the completer who comes alongside of him. And yes, she did work outside of the whatever kind of home they had. She joined him He had already started naming the animals. There's no one who can work alongside of me to subdue the earth, to rule the creation, and to be fruitful and multiply. God says, I've got the solution. So he gives him anesthesia. It's probably, what do they call it? Propopol or something like that? Whatever they call that thing. I I just had a surgery, another little one, and... um, I tried to buy a quart of it when I went home, but they wouldn't give it to me. He said it wasn't a good idea. But some anesthesia was given to him. There he he's put to sleep, and he wakes up. And I'm going to tell you what he said. I know he said Isha, but I know he spoke Hebrew. Had to had to speak Hebrew. Uh, spent too much money learning it for him not to speak Hebrew. But I know he spoke Hebrew. But I think he woke up and said. Whoa, man, that's what he said. <laughs> no more dating, no more courting, that's done. This is the perfect one. And so taken from his side, she then, she then becomes his helper completer. In other words, she bears the names of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said? I must go away to send to you the other helper. The other, who's the, who's the first helper? The son. Who's the other helper? The Holy Spirit. Do you see how it takes both male and female to image God? It requires both. But can you see how equality is not interchangeability? We're different. Different origin. Both created mediatorially by mediation with something existing. But both coming from different origins framed to be completers with the standing of equality before God, for both are necessary to reflect the image of God. 
And so there is, oh my, there is this um, this glorious statement that's given to us. So let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. Just jot these down. That's all I can do. I can just give them to you. I can't preach on them. Here's the first one. First, the, so let me let me give you a download. Just these are your takeaways. Number one is this: that Adam, that Adam and Eve. Here's what we learn: they are divinely created living creatures. They are divinely living created creatures. They are living. They are living man, male and female. That's the first thing that you need to created mediatorially. Yes. Created specially as he breathes in the breath of life and bearing the image of God as nothing else does. Secondly, Adam is the first man. All of humanity comes from Adam, including Eve. All of humanity comes from Adam. Not a hominid. Not an ape. But from Adam specially created by God in his image. All other, all other men, all other males, Eve, all other women, all come from Adam. Now do you see why Paul said in Acts chapter 17, now do you see why Paul in Acts chapter 17 says significantly and pointedly, significantly and pointedly, that all the nations came from the same father. That the entire human race came from him. He is the first man. All others. Every ethnicity. Every, every ethnicity. Every human being, male and female, find their origin in Adam when he was created. And that includes Eve and female offspring as well. Now, of course, that's, uh, I mean, that's, Something that I think is uh, is abundantly clear uh, in how God made them and how God um, sets him in that particular position. Well, I got to move ahead. Here's number three. Um, number three, he that man, male and female, through Adam and then the creation of Eve, are created with intrinsic God-appointed dignity, made in His image. That's why James says, "How can you say you love God and hate your brother?" He doesn't say that because your love of your brother is what gives your brother dignity. No, God gives your brother dignity. God made them in his image. And how can you say that you made in the image of God, love God, that's what James says, if you hate those who are made in the image of God? We argue from the greater to the lesser in order to affirm the virtues of relationships. And so there he establishes that Adam was created with dignity. So he's a divinely created living creature. He is, um, he is the first man. He's not the last man, but he's the first man. And all of humanity comes from him. Number three, he is created with God-appointed dignity made in the image of God. Number four, he is not only the father of mankind, he's a married man. He is a married man. This man, Adam, was a married man. And God himself did the very first marriage. And God himself uh, did the, uh, took, he got short-circuited the dating. He said, I, I got, the, I'm, this is an arranged marriage. I'm going to put this one together for you. 
And so, um, and so he is a married man and the father of mankind. Number five, he is not only the first man, he is the first Adam. He is the first man and he is the first Adam. Now there will be a second Adam. But here is the first man. Isn't it interesting? The ancestry of Jesus was appointed. The second Adam. And he comes and he has descendants. And the first Adam had no ancestry. But all of humanity are his descendants. So that brings us to number six. Adam becomes a type of Christ. Now remember, types in the Bible are not mythical. They are symbols from a substance that is real. So the fact that Christ is the second Adam and he is a historical reality, then the type of Christ has to be a historical reality. Types are not myths or metaphors. Types are historical realities that God has appointed to, in some degree, typify who Christ is, whether it's Noah or or Abraham or Moses or whoever the type is. They are historical people, and so it is with Adam. That means Adam is a covenantal man. He has an appointed covenant with God, with responsibilities, with blessings, with curses, and and with um, and with uh, sacraments. Next, he is he is the type of Christ who was the second Adam, but also the last Adam. The last Adam, which I've already said, really. That means he is a historical man. You know, whenever I talk with my theistic evolution people, I say, can you show me the hominids? Where are they? Well, after man, after they evolved into man, the hominids were done away with. Well, let me ask you a question. Where did the hominids come from? Oh, they came from apes. Well, I can show you apes. If man did away with the hominids, how come the hominids didn't do away with the apes? Well, were the hominids human? No, they weren't human. Well, after Noah, could they kill a hominid and eat it? If it was just an animal. These gymnastics we go to just don't bear Biblical or even logical consistency from a biblical world and life view. And then I would just remind you that the genealogies in the Bible that are comprehensive, there's one in Chronicles, there's one in Genesis 5. You find them in Matthew, you find them in Luke, you find Paul referring to the first Adam, Peter, and you find them all referring to him as a historical reality and placed at the top of the genealogy, first man, 
is this Adam. In genealogy after genealogy after genealogy. None of the genealogies start with hominids. They start with Adam. Who is affirmed by Jesus, Paul, Peter, the prophets, and Moses. As a historical reality made in the image of God. Adam was the first man. Adam was the first Adam. Adam was a true man. Adam was a living man. This is crucial for us. If you do not believe in the sanctity of man, male and female, no wonder you can dismiss imperfect, unwanted, and inconvenient lives as meaningless. I mean, if I got a hominid that's not a man until you get a man, then why wouldn't an embryo or a fetus who care? That, but that's not a real life. Particularly if I'm in a, if I believe that people are only, are only given dignity if they're wanted or affirmed or desired. We live in a culture of death and the reason is we've lost the doctrine of creation in general and we've lost the sixth day of creation in particular that man is made in the image of God and that life is sacred made in the image of God. And folks, let me just say, I listen, nobody works harder for legislative intervention in public policy that will preserve the sanctity of life. But I am telling you, until the doctrine of creation is once again preached from the pulpits of Christ's church, you will never have a foundation foundation to maintain the sanctity of life in this culture. It will simply be life is not worthwhile unless I want it or it's perfect enough for me or it's what I want and if it's not inconvenient. Otherwise, it'll be expendable. The human race, we will not get rid of racism. Until we understand we are one race from Adam. With multiple ethnicities that come from Babel. But one race. And all of us have our human origin in Adam. From one man he made all mankind. Acts 17. And until we get there, we will never. Now, we can retard racism, and praise God when we do. And we can restrain it. But we will not get rid of race oppressiveness and racism. Even the current mechanisms being promoted in our schools are not attacking racism. It's just exchanging one racism for another. This is why this is so crucial, the sanctity of man. I mean, I could, I could simply take you to the 19th century. The embarrassment of Christian preachers and theologians who willingly embrace Darwinian 
Darwinian origin at least qualified with theistic evolution in order to maintain the oppression of people from, uh, from another nation and sold into chattel slavery and to support man-stealing. It was the loss of the doctrine of creation that was at the root of it in the 1840s and 1850s. Do you know why aboriginal populations in Australia, North America, and Africa were slaughtered by quote-unquote discoverers? They were the leftover hominids. They weren't worthy of life. These are crucial issues for redemptive theology and public theology. The family. If we understood the sacred dynamic of how and why and where and from what did God make man, male and female, and the dignity of it, then we wouldn't let the culture shame us away from a biblical complementarianism. Notice I said biblical, not a cultural complementarianism, a biblical complementarianism. And you're not even, we're not even going to be able to preach Christ. Folks, listen, let me ask you something. To preach Christ, I've got to preach against what? That you need to be saved from what? This isn't hard. Three letters. Sin. Sin. Well, where'd the first sin come from? The first Adam. Where did my sin nature come from? The first Adam. I don't believe, as long as pulpits attempt to explain away the creation of Adam, they're not going to preach on sin. We've lost the very origin of sin. And we won't preach on the second Adam. Who needs a second Adam? If there's not a first Adam whereby we fell into sin, who needs a second Adam? And where is the theology of a second Adam in whom I have life? In Christ, in in Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. There's Adam and his seed that when he sinned, we sinned. Who is the seed of Adam? Humanity. All humanity. Who is the seed of Christ? The elect. All of Adam is lost. All of Christ will be saved. The very covenant theology and typology of of Christ the second Adam is at stake in this. The very gospel is at stake. Not simply common grace public theology, but the preaching of redemptive theology. Well, I'm out of time. In fact, I was... And five minutes ago, I was out of time. So I'll close in prayer. Can I just give you one final thing? Uh, And uh, I'll come back to it uh, later. I believe you're going to meet Adam in heaven. I believe you were saved. I don't believe you miss over when God came looking for him, just like he came looking for you and your sin. It's called calling. And then what happened? He found him with shame and guilt. And what did he do? By the way, don't miss this. When did Adam and Eve get ashamed? When did they get ashamed? I know what you're thinking. When they ate the fruit. No. They got shame and guilt. Not when Eve ate. But when Adam ate. 
He was the covenant head and responsible. He should have crushed the head of the serpent. He should have said to God, don't take her, take me. That's what the second Adam did. He crushed the head of the serpent. And he sat there silent as a prophet. But what does Jesus do when Satan comes? He quotes the scripture to him in the wilderness. Here is Adam, east of Aden. Here is Christ, east in the wilderness. Adam sins and is silent with the word he had been given to be the prophet and protector of his wife. And when she sinned, he gave her over for his own sin. He didn't take her place. And he didn't crush the head of the serpent. And he didn't speak the word, but you got a second Adam. He spoke the word. This Adam gets driven out of the garden by the angels. Am I right? Jesus comes out of the tomb accompanied by the angels and leaves the Mount of Olives accompanied by the angels. This is the Savior who, when he withstood the temptation with the Word of God in the wilderness, was ministered to by the angels. Adam and Christ will never really preach the biblical Christ until we grasp the biblical Adam. Let's pray. God, thank you for the time we could be together in your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their love for your word and their patience to work through this with me. So we give you praise and thanksgiving and ask that Jesus be exalted, that Christ be glorified as creator of the first Adam and the second Adam who gives us redemption and brings us home. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.